Has anyone else seen or been playing any Deadly Premonition 2? No. There is just a scene where I'm talking to a bartender who's just wearing nothing but just cowboy boots, a cowboy hat, and whitey tighties, and that's it. And he's just talking to this FBI agent being like, truth bomb number two, FBI man. Sometimes people just get murdered. <laughs> yeah. And then it cuts to him and he just, uh, he just looks at the camera and goes, yeah. Fangamer, and this is the podcast where you get to hang out with weirdos who work at a video game merchandising company. I'm your host, Charlie, and I'm joined today by Jack and Sarah. Say hello. Hello. Hi again. Unfortunately, due to a scheduling mix-up, Carolyn won't be joining us for this episode, but hopefully she'll be able to join us next time as we continue this series, so we'll be able to catch up with her pretty soon. Today, we're continuing with our EXP share for Avatar The Last Airbender. This time, we'll be covering the first half of Book 2, Earth. Before we jump into book two, however, I wanted to take a step back and consider a few things we didn't get the chance to talk about last time when we tried to, you know, fit the entirety of book one into a single episode. Uh, We spent a lot of time talking about Sokka and Zuko, mostly, I would say, (laughs) and no doubt we'll be talking about them even more as we go on. But I I feel like we didn't really get to talk much about the other two arguably more central main characters, Aang and Katara. (laughs) Yeah. So, Jack, you did mention Aang last time, but mostly just to note that you didn't really like him, at least at first. So if I may follow up, uh, mm-hmm. did he grow on you by the end of season one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> a, a lot more than my initial impression. Okay. Because <laughs> I was going to say, like, I do, I know you, and I know your D&D characters. And other than his <laughs> goofiness, which I would say is still even matches up pretty well, I'd expect his deeply pacifist nature would appeal to you at the very least. No, no, yes. Like, I do I do appreciate that. He came off, I think, a little too strong on the childish. Like, the, mm-hmm. I, I felt like that was leaned on a little too hard when he was first introduced. But mm-hmm. no, like, I... I totally think, you know, he's a he's a good person, he has good values, and he means well and works hard to achieve those. And so, like, he definitely has um, an idealist and the almost, like, fantasy level of, like, the, how unreal his ideals are, you know, contra- like, conflicts with the reality of the world. And mm-hmm. uh, it makes for, for some pretty interesting moments and I think drives a lot of the, the conflict and plot in a lot of the uh, episodes. Aang is a very important character, and... I respect him a lot more now that I'm like, I'm in the show. I'm waist deep in the show now. <laughs> uh, what about you, Sarah? What were your thoughts on on Aang as you progressed through the show? Yeah, I um, maybe this is more personal. I can really relate to his desire for <laughs> mischief in the sense that like uh, <laughs> he's opportunity and kind of just like acts on that. <laughs> I think that Aang is. I think, I don't know, he, he's very young and childish in nature and like likes to be playful and likes to like, I don't know, like circumvent having to be held accountable for some things, at least like in the initial issue um, uh-huh. episodes. But we kind of, 
see him battle internally with the weight of the world is like onto him and like what does holding himself accountable to that and that responsibility entail i think it was episode three where the southern temple where he is reminded of what his past was and how he can't really escape that in some ways because it is very tied into what the future looks like as well has I think made his like character development interesting for me because as an airbender is he going to run away from that and displace that or is he going to hold his feet yeah and that's not certainly a thing that we're, we're going to get into uh, a little bit later over the course of the the episodes that we're uh, looking at here in the first half of the the second season but yeah uh, it, you can definitely notice like this tendency that he tends toward, I would say, is conflict avoidance, just trying to move mm-hmm. himself out the way. Like if something major is coming, he'll he'll try to avoid it as much as possible. But there are some things that he can't avoid. And will he be able to stand up whenever the time comes? And so mm. far, he's generally shown that, that, yeah, whenever, when it hits the fan, uh, he can stand up. But that is not his his natural inclination. Oh, uh, yeah. something that you said during that, Charlie, actually reminded me. I think I may have a favorite Aang moment right now. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think uh, this is the second season. I, or, yeah, second season. There's the point where someone's trying to force him into the Avatar state. Oh, yeah. By yeah. Fight him. And uh, the guy shouts, you can't run forever. Uh, because, again, Aang is, you know, avoiding fighting. Mm-hmm. And Aang's retort is, you can't fight forever. And just, I don't know, I just really, that really, uh, I appreciated that a lot. That defiance against this uh, sort of older sort of authority figure who, that is just t- like two totally different outlooks on life and how power should be used. Yeah, like this this, this military guy sees, wor- sees the world this one way and mm-hmm. Aang clearly sees it a very different way and is going to try and prove it (laughs) yeah exactly it's very much a glass is half full glass is half empty sort of thing where they're both right you know and it's just sort of like these two ideals kind of coming together and seeing which one will hold out on top and just yeah i don't know ang has got very strong character and very strong spirit in that regard yeah ang is interesting to me because for a person chosen to be like this great balancing force in the world he doesn't Mm -hmm. seem all that different from anybody else Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's like he certainly has like moments where he gets become like you know he'll sit down in the in a meditative pose and you can see okay this is a spiritual person sure but I mean that doesn't seem that different from any of the other uh, air nomads that you see that you've seen from the past in the show mm-hmm. at the very least you can tell he's not some perfect Buddha like figure or anything like that if he was he probably wouldn't yeah. have disappeared for a hundred years <laughs> and let the world go out of balance so much yeah. Oops sort of calls into the question this this like this idea of destiny to begin with like if destiny was so so central to what it means to be the avatar then wouldn't he have stopped it from getting to the way it is now Mm -hmm. so yeah he's just like he's just a human like everyone else except he has the potential to be a little bit more powerful not even that much more powerful like a little bit more powerful (laughs) yeah which kind of makes you wonder about like previous avatars and their humanity and flaws it really opens up the the idea of like why is this person so venerated why why do they trust them so much uh, or it makes me specifically wonder, like, how has the world been shaped by the biases of the avatars from the past? Because, mm-hmm. like, we, we know already that the last avatar was from the Fire Nation. 
And mm-hmm. while we don't, at this point, we haven't seen what might have happened in that regard, we do clearly see that the Fire Nation has become much more powerful than the other nations during that time, to the point where they have since taken over, or nearly taken over the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, really, it just makes me think that this whole Avatar system doesn't seem like a great system for keeping <laughs> yeah. the world in order. What's interesting, I didn't really think about that, like, or at least never. it never seemed that clear to me until now. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, I always just assumed that the Fire Nation was sort of in the situation they are just because of that was the temperament of the leader. Like we get a little bit more of a look into Zuko's dad mm-hmm. and how, I guess, crazy he is. So it's... But, but the Fire Nation attacked a hundred years ago. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and mm-hmm. Zuko's dad wasn't the one in control at that time. Nope. <laughs> So, so yeah, no, it's just, I, I guess, like I said, I haven't really realized that until now or haven't seen it that clearly that, yes, the current state of the world, or at least the uh, current position of the Fire Nation, could entirely be thanked to Aang's past life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we've met Roku. Like, he has been a retur- recurring character, and clearly there's some, some conflict there because we've already seen there in the first season whenever Aang goes and learns about... Sozin's Comet? Mm-hmm. And so, so they, he gets to have more of a conversation with Avatar Roku, and you get to see like how there's some conflict between the Fire Lord and Avatar Roku to the point where the people who are actually maintaining that the, the temple to Roku have more allegiance to the Fire Lord than to the Avatar. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, little hints, little hints about things <laughs> that have happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I to to that point of like what what is like the purpose of the avatar? They always like express so early on in the show it's like to restore balance to the world, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that in Aang's past life, Roko is speaking to him and kind of like guiding him towards what I believe is like unfinished business because why else would he be why would he be so active in doing that? Because Aang, Aang wakes up and he he's pretty much like his destiny is kind of laid out of like he really needs to restore balance into the world, right? And for him to learn how to do that, he has to like examine his own personal history um, or his past life history and learn from that in the sense of like what went wrong and <laughs> and how did we fail and how to learn from that yeah it's definitely presented more as especially from the beginning empire bad what you need to do is crumble that empire destroy it or whatever and then everything will be good again mm-hmm. but the the show is of course hinting that well there, no there, there's more to this past that happened and like the past has informed the future and even yeah. from the beginning angus was saying about how oh no the fire nation isn't all bad i know people in the fire nation or at least i did mm-hmm. so there, there's more to it than that and mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's an interesting thought that uh, that i hadn't considered is that the reason why roku shows up so much isn't just because he was the last avatar before ang and therefore he has he, i guess he's more fresh in the <laughs> in the avatarness <laughs> but no because but it's because he has unfinished business i think that's a that's a cool concept yeah. and we kind of we're gonna see that a little bit later in these episodes with kiyoshi coming back also having a little bit of unfinished business i suppose mm. and yeah that seems to be the time whenever they really come to the forefront is whenever something directly relates to them Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yoshi's awesome. Like, (laughs) this is the first avatar to me who's not really elusive. In my experience with Roku, he appears, but almost like as an apparition to Aang. (laughs) He's like, you gotta put in some work to find the answers, because I I don't know what. You have to go on these, like, missions and journey to to reach me. But Avatar Kyoshi comes in, and she's, she knows what she's about. (laughs) (laughs) Like... Mm-hmm. Very, very direct. <laughs> yeah, it's not like she's a, a spirit with regrets in the afterlife. She's just like, this is what I did, and uh, this was how I was justified in doing yeah, absolutely it. No, no regrets. I mean, she essentially gives her uh, future self a death sentence. Just <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get into that one pretty soon. But, uh, one more thing before we get into into the uh, the episodes of this, uh, I do want to talk about Katara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we haven't really talked about the journey of Katara or how she grows over the course of the show. We did mm-hmm. mention her a little bit in the first episode, but not very much. Like from the beginning, she seems, she's just she's very direct. She's polite, brave and reliable and just generally light on flaws, I would say, uh, which is mm-hmm. maybe why she's not as fun to talk about as the deeply flawed Zuko and Sokka. Mm-hmm. Am I right in that assessment? And if so, does this make Katara an uninteresting character? Oh, OK. Katara... I think is really interesting to me because from the get-go, you understand it sets up the premise that she has been traumatized by the death of her mother. That's kind of a burden that she shares with Sokka. And uh, we also understand that she is a waterbender, although she doesn't have any type of like elder wisdom or like ancestral knowledge to guide her in that way she's very self-taught right and that's always been interesting to me because everything that she is trying to have like a deeper connection with with like her family life and where she comes from is actually expressed through her trying to learn the craft of water bending. So her journey in that way is really awesome because like definitely by the end of season one she is a master and mm-hmm. you're kind of just blown away by that and then with that power comes i think more like agency like i think she's been taking on a lot more charge this season as like a like a protector of the group yeah mm-hmm. i think she's often considered the, the group mom yeah <laughs> yeah making sure everyone's staying safe yeah yeah mm-hmm. are you all fed are you are you feeling okay mm-hmm. or although really what uh, that comes down to is she feels very responsible for the emotional state of the group as well. Mm. Yeah, she does do a lot of labor, like emotional labor for Aang, definitely like talking him down from the Avatar state. So it's like, it's it's interesting because like all of the characters have moments where they're, they're so emotionally charged that might put them in like harm's way. And it's like, they kind of take turns at checking each other on that. Yeah, they would, They it's very clear that this group would not have gotten nearly as far as they have if they weren't together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of times where the group gets split up and you just see how poorly that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're only talking about the first half of the season, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, okay, so, the second half is... Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is gonna be this is gonna be the lighter of the two episodes, which I, which is why I'm like, okay, yeah, let, let's take some time this time to to go back and talk about these other characters. Yeah. I don't think we're gonna have time for such a thing next time. Mm. <laughs> mm. Oh, what am I in for? Yeah. yeah. So, what about uh, your assessment of Katara, Jack? Huh. Well, I think I agree a lot with what you said. I'm trying to think about what exactly I could add to it. Yeah, I was a little disappointed when early on in season one, 
seems like a lot of like, there was an episode with like the fortune teller mm-hmm. and it seems like all Katara wanted to know about was boys and like crushes and like what her future hold it held in the way of like a family <laughs> and stuff like that and that seemed very very simple i suppose like there wasn't a whole lot of interesting things about that other than just i guess setting up ships for people um <laughs> like reinforcing those i guess like i said i think I, in the last episode i said she was just a very pleasant character and i remember you said charlie that that is uh you know it's it's nice but it's also a very kind of dangerous pitfall for female characters to just kind of be these uh pleasant neo how mary sues don't have any flaws and just kind of ultimately kind of a like you said a bear a boring character not an interesting character i still don't i don't think i have very many many strong feelings either way i i enjoy her character i think she's very she is very much a, a big part of the glue that holds everyone together however i can't say there's a whole lot of character development i've seen yet yeah mm-hmm. I, I would say that i mean i think that that's that's true and hmm. So, so for me, Katara kind of resembles Captain America. And, and by <laughs> yeah. that, I mean, like, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Captain America, the first Avenger, the, uh, the one from that first set of Marvel movies. Um, but if you did, you might notice that unlike characters in the other Marvel movies, Cap doesn't really grow as a character over the course of that movie. There isn't a mm-hmm. moment where he realizes that, uh, oh, he's been a, a crappy person, and if he changes this thing about himself and, and looks at things a different way, then suddenly he becomes the hero that he needs to be for this moment. No, Cap mm-hmm. is noble and self-sacrificing from the get-go, and <laughs> he, he, he gains power over the course of the movie, but his his personality, his nature stays true through the end. And what's interesting is seeing that nature tested and seeing other people come to terms with that nature and how he helps other people along the way. And Katara is very similar to me. Like, this entire journey is about her faith in the Avatar and how he can save the world. And we know this because she says so at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> at, yeah. <laughs> like, at, at the first episode, it goes a little bit differently. She says, So a hundred years have passed and the Fire Nation is nearing victory in the war. Two years ago, my father and the men of my tribe journeyed to the Earth Kingdom to help fight against the Fire Nation, leaving me and my brother to look after our tribe. Some people mm-hmm. believe that the, that the Avatar was never reborn into the Air Nomads and that the cycle is broken. But I haven't lost hope. I still believe that somehow the Avatar will return to save the world. And mm-hmm. then from the second episode on, she's, uh, it's always, A hundred years have passed, and my brother and I discovered a new Avatar, an Avatar named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. That <laughs> is the core of this whole story. She, her faith in the Avatar is what drives the narrative. I've been skipping the intro on every episode. <laughs> does, does that happen every episode? Every single episode, yes. Every epi- every single episode begins with Katara it, oh yeah, it starts, proclaiming you know, her faith in the Avatar. Yes, it's the exact same oh. thing. It's like, you know, earth, fire, air, uh, water. Mm-hmm. Originally, the four nations all lived in harmony, and then the fire nation attacked, etc. Yeah, every, every single time. That is what you get in lieu of an opening movie sequence or you know, all that stuff. so Or some like like rap or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I, I would say that this, this is a story about Katara's faith in the Avatar and whether that faith is well-founded. And, of course, we, the audience, likewise hope for a happy ending to that story. But, you know, while she may grow and learn over the course of the show, like she does become 
a waterbending master by the end of the first season. Where does she go from there even, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems clear to me that she doesn't need to fundamentally change to be interesting. Rather, she has a role. She's there to keep everybody else on track and to keep this group together and keep pushing forward. And I think that is sufficiently interesting as far as that goes. She doesn't need to necessarily change. Not every character does. Although um, the show does a great job of humanizing all these characters. Like, all these characters basically are playing roles, I think, in sort of a... I don't know how closely it follows like the hero's journey. I haven't analyzed the story to that degree or anything, <laughs> but um, it it's definitely seems like everyone has a role to play. However, the, the show does a great job of still keeping these characters themselves, like their own people. They're not just playing, they're not just wearing a mask or a title. Like the whole thing with Aang, I know, I forget what show it was, but I know it's been touched on in media before. Uh, and I don't mean to get like too religious here or anything, but sort of like, uh, they, they sort of bring up the whole idea of Jesus learning his destiny as a child or as like a kid. Their whole destiny is to eventually sacrifice themselves for humanity. And I know that in a lot of context, you know, Jesus is seen as this very, you know, tranquil, very seen as accepting and perfect, very divine, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And Aang is sort of the same is having the same shoes of just a child who at a very young age is given sort of like being told they have this destiny that it's like, how am I supposed to fulfill this? How am I supposed to fill these shoes, you know, mm -hmm. and reacting to it in a very interesting way where they aren't just simply like immaculate about it. They aren't just like fully accepting that there's actually like this, there's this inner turmoil, there's this struggle in that. And uh, with Katara being obviously supposed to be this mentor to Aang and having this faith in him, I think uh, an interesting episode was when she kind of got short with Aang when he was just perfect at everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, that's good. That's what you want. You want him to be a, a natural at waterbending because that's going to help him save the world, like you say, at the beginning of every episode. But there's a good point where, and I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to, is just working hard and trying hard and just that there's someone else that's always going to be better than you. And making it look easy, you know? So, yeah, I, I really appreciated that sort of look at Katara, where she wasn't just like, you know, Aang fanboy the entire time, that her and Aang actually butt heads quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Like you said, she's a, she's this master of water bending now. So, it's very much begs the question, like you said, where does she go from here? And I think you all know, <laughs> you both know where that's going. I don't yet. So, is there something I should? I guess you really can't say anything, but am I in the right state of mind right now where I'm viewing uh, Katara as a, as a nice support in the party, but like other than that really doesn't have any real strong, like you said, character flaws or any like room for growth right now, but... Yeah, let me let me think on that a bit more because in, in some ways, yes, what is driving this story forward and what kind of centers people's motivation is the fact that the avatar needs to balance out the world right so a lot of people's motivations are going to be like directed to serve that purpose you know we've got this support character who's going to basically be on this journey to get Aang to like finish the job right but I think something uh, also important to acknowledge and what Jackie was speaking about is that like you know these characters they have their own like they hold their own basically they're not just window dressing to Aang like, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. I feel like they have a lot of the word I'm going to use is like agency in negotiating with him agency in pulling the group a certain way and I, I think I want to I want to highlight more about 
how Katara exists in that group because like yes she is a team player definitely but also like in the episode where she steals the water bending scroll <laughs> I, I that was just her yes putting the group in harm's way but it was for her own means that was more for her than for like the group if that makes sense for sure in the next episode or like in the yeah, what Jack was talking about with how she was like frustrated with Aang being a natural, that's when you kind of learn like, oh, she stole the scroll for herself, right? She like <laughs> doesn't really care about Aang's mastery of water bend- bending to save the world. She just wants to have that knowledge. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll say that, that just as there have been some very Katara-centric episodes, such as that one and the one mm-hmm. where she becomes a prisoner in order to help save a bunch of earthbenders mm-hmm. there are definitely more katara centric episodes coming up that i yeah. think are yeah very good very interesting and worth looking forward to okay yeah how could i have forgot about those moments the stealing from the pirates and the doing a prison breakout from the inside <laughs> uh, katara has some great moments yeah yeah i'd say it's not that she is a bad character i'd say she does get overshadowed sometimes by some of the mm-hmm. other characters. But the show is definitely doing what it can to let everybody have moments to shine. Exactly. And I'm, I'm feeling like she's a fan favorite, probably. Like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have my uh, finger on, like, the pulse of, like, the fandom or anything. But I imagine she's probably a pretty big favorite. And, I don't know, I think she's deserving of that. So you, you mentioned shipping earlier, uh, <laughs> setting oh, yeah. up ships. Anchors away. There, there were a lot of people who were very invested in shipping Katara mm-hmm. with Zuko. Of course, mm-hmm. we're going this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Starting with whenever, uh, you know, back in season one, whenever, yeah, they, they just start with this antagonistic dynamic. And I guess a lot of people saw that and were like, oh, we know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> Ice and fire, hot and cold, baby. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. My roommate and I, we we talk a lot about Avatar, and she's an Avatar encyclopedia. Uh-huh. But not once has she talked about shipping. And <laughs> I can't put myself in the headspace of, like, shipping culture. Like, sure, there's some things that you can read into. Like, sure, they're having a very human moment, but at the same time, it's like, how much of that could even be read as like romantic because they are 12 14 you know 15 years old it is a little weird first of all <laughs> <laughs> like all right because clearly ang does have a crush on katara that is obvious yeah but like all right say that works out that that works out perfectly for you ang you do end up getting a girlfriend at age 12 <laughs> i i don't personally know a lot of relationships that start at age 12 and last forever granted it you know maybe you know different times things go differently i don't know your life expectancy is 35 (laughs) gotta get on that yeah 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 it's it it is weird i would say generally to to ship these children but you know people will do what they do well when when i discuss ships i imagine like we were talking about the demograph is also probably like 12 14 year olds yeah (laughs) All right, let's start actually getting into these episodes so we can start talking about them. But first, let's take a quick break and hear a little bit about the company that makes this show possible. So this show is, of course, brought to you by Fangamer. 
Uh, if you would like to support this podcast, you know, head over to Fangamer.com and check out our selection of fine video game paraphernalia. Despite the pandemic, we are still chugging away at shipping orders so that we can keep the lights on while keeping our employees safe. Your support really means the world to us, so thank you, thank you, thank you for everything and for just checking us out. Uh, also, heads up that Fangamer is hosting weekly streams on our Twitch channel every Thursday at 2 p.m. Arizona time. Thank you, Jack, for getting me to start mentioning this. <laughs> so each week we have an artist or creator showing off their skills and teaching the secrets of their craft for a couple of hours. It's it's fun. It's interactive. Uh, go check it out at twitch.tv slash Fangamer. So finally, in addition to Fangamer, this episode is brought to you by Gamer Blood. Gamer Blood is the only gamer energy drink that you can inject directly into your bloodstream to give you the boost you need to own more noobs. They also want me to sing this um, jingle. Does Gamer Blood even have a jingle? Like, they gave me the lyrics, but I don't know how to sing it. Uh, the lyrics are just... Uh, it's it, The lyrics are Gamer Blood, Gamer Blood, Gamer Blood, Gamer Blood, 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 mm -hmm. Gamer Blood. Ah... I do it. I do it. Yeah, I don't know how I'm supposed to sing this. <laughs> yeah, no, I've... Just huh. run, I do it. I do it. I do it. <laughs> it's, it's strange, yeah. I've been hooked up to Gamer Blood for like the last three weeks, and I had this like, this tune stuck in my head, but I didn't know what it was. Hmm. So, so it's something that's like in the serum or whatever you would call it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Is the hierarchy caffeine, Adderall, gamer blood? I think that was... Oh, wait, no, that's Digimon. Okay, <laughs> I don't know why, but I've just been hearing that nonstop since I plugged in this uh, IV. <laughs> yeah, so I'll do my best here. Let's see. Um, gamer blood, da-da-da-da. Da 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 da. Gamer blood. Da 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 da. Gamer blood. Da 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 da. Gamer blood. Blood blood blood. Gamer blood. Ah! All right, wait, wait. It's more like a like some sort of guttural like new metal scream that I'm not gonna do on this podcast. I'm sorry. Okay. And then just I do it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like I was thinking like the We Love LA, but. Uh, you, you might be right. I, I don't know. And you are the one who was hooked up, so I'm going to just, I'm going to default to your, to your take. Wait, you're uh, not hooked up? Uh, not, uh... <laughs> Charlie, uh, you're supposed to be hooked up. Uh, uh, uh Gamer Blood, uh, I, I do it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I'm going to have to tell Reed this. That's, that's, that's on the package of everything, uh, at just in small print at the bottom. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, all right. Uh, well, thank you for our sponsors. Let's get back to talking about Avatar. So, Avatar. Uh, we've got ten episodes here. So let's kind of run through them a bit. And uh, maybe I'll just... Uh, I'll mention an episode, kind of maybe give a synopsis if nobody else uh, remembers how the episode actually goes. And we can talk about any interesting things that happened in that episode. Sound good? Okay. Yeah, I gotta say, 10 episodes was a lot more manageable. That was nice. Okay, good. Uh, also, you had more time to go through them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was my fault. It was my <laughs> fault for giving myself such a uh, short time to watch all of them. So, here we go. We're, let's start with uh, episode one, The Avatar State, which we did kind of talk about a little bit. Uh, the mm -hmm. gang leaves the Northern Water Tribe and returns to the Earth Kingdom, planning to return to Omashu so that Aang can learn earthbending from Bumi. An Earth Kingdom general is supposed to escort the gang there. 
but he first tries to convince Aang to just learn how to use the Avatar state as a weapon, and then go mm-hmm. just defeat the Fire and Ocean now, instead of waiting until later. Uh, eventually, Aang learns that the Avatar state is a defense mechanism to protect the Avatar, and that if he's killed in that state, the Avatar cycle will end. Uh, meanwhile, yeah, pretty big. Yeah, it, it, it answers some questions that I'm sure other people have had. Uh, through the first season about why don't we just do that all the time (laughs) meanwhile uh, another thing that happens in this episode is Azula tries to trick Zuko into becoming her prisoner but Zuko and Iroh escape and become fugitives so that really sets the the tone for their whole thing uh, this season as well Azula is so scary (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah we're, we're getting our first real look at Azula and what she's all about now which is very key to pretty much the rest of the series I would say yeah in some ways, she's taken on this role that Zuko had earlier. So there's like that sibling rivalry because they're on both the same mission of trying to capture the Avatar. But she's just more efficient about it. She's so thing. much better at it than he is. And, that, and I, I mentioned last time specifically about how Zuko was pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My question is like, what makes her more efficient at it? And it's like, oh, it's something about her precision I don't know. It's like, it's all tied into me of like, yes, she's precise, but then also, yes, she runs a ship of fear, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's more ruthless, which makes her in some ways more effective, but also makes her uh, generally less, at least to the audience, less relatable. Yeah, in Zuko, there were... When in, in his journey to try to capture the Avatar, there were episodes where he actually sidetracked to instead find his uncle, right? But with Azula, it was like any means necessary. I don't care what, like, anything that comes in my way is just, mm-hmm. like, in my way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She she has a, like, you said she's uh, kind of so ruthless to the point of being, like, unrelatable. I was going to say, yeah, I think her attitude kind of borders on just sadistic sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you, you look back and uh, whenever you, you saw the the story of of how Zuko got his scar and, you know, he yeah. gets in the Agni Kai with his dad and Iroh talks about how he has to look away and then you just see Azula in front of in front of him really into it. Like, yeah, burn that brother. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just wafting in that smell of burned brother flesh. Mmm, mm-hmm. so good. Yeah, she, she's good. Mm. And yeah, we're going to... Uh, yeah. We get more. I don't know if it's this episode or, gosh, when when is it that we get more? Oh, I think it's not until Zuko alone that we get a lot more about, uh, like showing her as a kid, and mm-hmm. just what Zuko had to deal with. <laughs> yeah, let's run through a little bit more about this episode here. Um, so they establish a few things. Their former master, or um, Katara and Aang's former water bending master, he gives them a couple of gifts, including some. Uh, some special water from the Spirit Oasis for Katara, mm-hmm. and some waterbending scrolls for Aang. Mm-hmm. So we, we have a clear goal here that that's set up in this first episode. First episodes, of course, always have a lot of heavy lifting to do. After going off and learning waterbending, now we know, okay, next Aang needs to learn earthbending. Where is he going to learn earthbending? He's going to learn it from Boomy over uh, over in Omashu. We knew we met Boomy. We know where Omashu's at. Cool, we have a goal. Azula demonstrates her ability to, to bend lightning. Mm-hmm. Which is terrifying. Uh, and also mm-hmm, just generally, cool. whenever she uses firebending, her flames are blue, which nobody else has. Mm-hmm. So you always know 
you know, who's bending what fire, I guess. It's it's useful, and also, I think, physically, Blue Flame is hotter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just really mm-hmm. shows that she like is white, literally... White, blue, yellow, red, I think. Yeah, so, so you know that she is literally more powerful than most firebenders. Mm-hmm. Let's see, Azula calls Zuko Zuzu, which I just had as a little note from my, from that episode, <laughs> which I just found amusing. Yeah. Mm, yeah, Azula just straight up lies to Zuko and just knows how to prey on, on his, his wishes. Yeah. yeah. Like, she, she knows what people want, and she knows how to use their desires against them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she's just so dangerous. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is the same guy, but the uh, the fire soldier who lets it slip, saying, like, all right, you know, we're, we got the prisoners on board or something. They're like, oh, uh-huh. shit, prisoners. I think, uh, I'm not sure if it's the same guy, but there's someone who seems a lot, looks a lot like him. Uh, same sort of, I think, facial hair and uh, armor. I mean, they all wear the same armor. But he's, I'm wondering if it's the same guy, but he has an eye patch now. Which makes me think that like Azula took his eye as like punishment or something like that. That, that sounds <laughs> like the sort of small detail that I would expect out of this show, yes. Yeah. Which again, it is also just how the show kind of portrays, uh, you know, the horrors of war and like brutality without actually showing any of it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. How I read it is she is very quickly able to see through people um, into their fears and use that against them so it's like yes she can see what someone like Zuko's desires are which is to be like accepted back into his family right but there is also the fear that that may not happen right so it's actually the fear that it may not happen is that what she is speaking directly to Mm -hmm. yeah I think I feel like uh, Azula and Iroh are similar in their abilities to read people very very well and the, the thing that distinguishes them is not just their abilities, but how they use them. Yeah, Iroh is also capable of lightning bending. He is, but, but yeah, he just doesn't want to use it most of the time because it's really dangerous and hard to control. He knows how to read people, and he, but he usually uses it to help them instead of use it against them. Speaking about Iroh and uh, like knowing the dangers of uh, lightning, um, that scene where he redirects it, I think that that was a very solid moment where... I really like how the the universe, like this show, any other show that it, it deals with like magic and stuff like that, Iroh could have just thrown up a shield, you know, and like this little glowing bubble appears and the lightning bounces off of it. But no, he like, he grabs her arm and re, like channels it through his body and out his other hand. The game Sekiro from, some, from Software has a mechanic where there's some of the like the strongest enemies in the game are able to use lightning attacks at you. And if you're like from a lot of some from software games, it's all about uh, your response time, being able to identify your enemy's attack animation and being able to know what counter to uh, follow it with. Um, in Sekiro, you have to jump off the ground, get struck by the attack, and then attack before you hit the ground. So you're like not grounded. So you sort of hold the energy inside of you and you release it. And you can like, you can reverse the attack on your enemy. And I just got super strong, like Sekiro vibes from that. <laughs> and just from software is so good at like world building. And I got that feeling from that scene of just sort of how grounded the elemental system feels in the show. They don't do a lot of explaining the hard mechanics of a lot of how it all works, but it just feels so natural the way that it's just woven into the animation and just 
uh, how they just how the people in the world just assume okay this is just this is just how things work they don't really question it too much and so well, the audience don't question it very much uh, but it, it yet it feels very natural at all times yeah. very impressive <laughs> the way that they've just kind of woven this magic system into this world yeah and it feels balanced too like there is no just you know op person like you said like azula's fire is a uh, stronger than others because it's blue but there's still these checks and balances where like if someone else is bending their element correctly there's always a counter you know there's always something that you can do to counterbalance that mm-hmm. yeah and it's also like how battles are fought let's say like against azula you might no no character is as strong on their own against her it it's always got to be like maybe a group effort to <laughs> to chip away at her and that's that's what's got to be done is the thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah she uh, we'll get into that in a later episode but yeah azula's <laughs> competence is terrifying <laughs> uh but yeah let's go ahead let's let's start working our way towards those interesting episodes so next we have uh episode two uh the cave of two lovers the, the gang is trying to reach Owashu. they can't get uh, go over the mountains because i guess the there's a bunch of fire catapults over there and the gang gets kind of cornered so they decide to go under the mountain instead of over it uh, along with a group of weirdos who they run across and i just enjoy this this party of bards they're just they're just so good such a very good one-off characters it's a very silly episode and meanwhile we just get to continue following zuko as he sees more of the earth kingdom he's starting to grow hair and we get to just see uh sokka get in uh, once again put into the worst possible position where he's the person who's stuck with all these weirdos trying to use trying to use common sense and logic to get his way out of a uh, mystical cave yeah Uh, (laughs) that's a transitional episode i would say as we get into episode three return to omashu Mm. so the gang arrives at omashu to see that it's been captured by the fire nation they break into the city to try to save boomy but after encountering azula and getting boomy to safety uh, boomy opts to return to the fire nation as their prisoner in order to save Mm. his people and so ang must find another teacher uh there's a lot that happens in this episode though Mm -hmm. so first we we see now that uh I, i guess it used to be that there were two Earth Kingdom strongholds. There's Ba Sing Se, which continues to be mentioned. And then there's Omashu, but now Omashu has been taken over, despite how secure it seemed in the first season. But I would say arguably more important here is just watching Azula assemble her uh, assemble her team. Yeah, get the band back together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, her entourage. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we've got Mei, who is, uh, who is a capable knife thrower. And just generally, just kind of done with the world, I guess. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. like, yeah, I guess that sounds fun. That's more the interesting than what I'm doing. in the age of 15 or something. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah I, I feel like to Maybe be... she's just a teenager. Yeah, yeah. She's apathetic is the word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, we also get uh, Ty Lee, who was working at a circus before. And we again get to see Azula's uh, ruthlessness and how well she just preys on people's fears whenever Tylee just refuses first. She's like, no, I'm actually happy here. The circus is where I want to be. And Azula's like, great, I'll just start, I'll just come watch your show. (laughs) She's Mm -hmm. like, oh no. I don't really understand how, I, I I don't really understand why she joined Azula. Like, I, I guess you could say that it was a, she was strong-armed. She was threatened. 
into joining her. Uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily that she was threatened so much as I'd say that the rest oh. of the circus was threatened. Is that what happened? That's the impression I got. Oh, okay. I got the impression she just changed her mind. That she was just up on the tight wire, like up on the high rope and just, you know, the net catches on fire and there's lions and stuff. And yeah. she just went, actually, I don't want to be a gymnast anymore. This is dangerous. It's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, like you do know what happened, right? Like This isn't your job. Like, this isn't how it's going to be forever. It's like, she's just messing with you. So I, I thought she was just like threatened into doing it, but... It, it didn't she didn't treat it that way she wasn't like all right Sula, you get what you want and i'll mm-hmm. go with you you know it was very much like a happy like oh no i'm done i'll go with you now it's just like what happened so yeah i think it's because tylee is smarter than she lets on mm-hmm. and she definitely knows azula mm-hmm. they, they are clearly childhood friends which is why azula went went to go find her tylee is incredibly capable but she just has this personality that just feels very bubbly uh, and makes mm-hmm. people think that, oh, she must be an airhead. Yeah. And she she doesn't disabuse people of that notion because I think it mm-hmm. benefits her. And I, Which is not to say that I think she is trying to pull one over on people very much. I don't know. It just suits her. She likes being that person, I think. Mm-hmm. If people are going to misjudge her, that's kind of on them. Like yeah. It's not up to her to correct them on that. Yeah, and, and something to also consider is like what type of interactions can you even have with Azula, right? Because I, I would say that all of the characters that Azula interacts with, um, save like her father or something, right? They actually have to be an inauthentic version of themselves um, because one, she is the princess. So she does have like a lot of power over them and you really can't show any type of resistance because I would say her friends um, definitely have an understanding that like showing resistance uh, will lead you to punishment. Sure, Azula gets what she wants. Yeah, it's that's always hovering above their heads. Yeah. I, I do feel like May feels that less than Tylee. I feel like May, if she has a problem with something that Azula is doing, she would just let her know. But I, I could be wrong there. Maybe she is more afraid of her than she lets on. She, she's just got this great poker face. So I find her harder to read <laughs> than Tylee, who is also very hard to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they're both great compliments for her. Like, uh, for sure. Just as, as far as like henchmen go, like I think they're a good fit. Incredibly confident. And uh, obedient, <laughs> which is <Yes>. exactly what <laughs> Azula wants out of anybody who follows her. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. Competent and obedient. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely a lot more interesting than just having like a horde of ninjas or pirates that just get weaker the more there are. So <laughs> having like a really tight, like a dangerous trio like that is very interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we also, uh, in this episode, get introduced to Tylee's terrifying ability to just block bending through pressure points mm-hmm. once again yeah. showing that okay just because you can't bend doesn't mean you're not useful exactly and also once again just bringing up that this would fit into a D campaign so well mm-hmm. <laughs> you have this wonderful monk character here so we have boomy encased in metal once again reminding us that earthbenders can't bend it which i find kind of strange yeah yeah i feel like metal is it's it's part of the earth it's like it's an it's an ore so i don't know it's uh i went past the show to like suddenly surprise us by having a bender who can bend metal mm-hmm. uh, but regardless of being encased in metal boomy does show that he can earth bend with just his face 
So, yep. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. So that's fun. Next episode is The Swamp. Yeah, this is one of my favorite episodes. I think this was the first episode I ever saw, just at a friend's place. Oh, really? And it just came on TV, and I was just watching this this weird thing. And I, I, I can say, as somebody who is from a swamp, the depiction of swamp people was not especially flattering to me, which might have <laughs> contributed to the fact that I didn't actually continue watching the show for a few years after this. <laughs> <laughs> so the gang is pulled into a swamp where they lose Appa and wander around the swamp seeing visions. Mm-hmm. They battle yeah. some kind of vine creature that turns out to be a waterbender, uh, while a group of swamp water- waterbenders capture Appa and try to eat him. Eventually they mm-hmm. find and save Appa and make peace with the swamp folk. And then there's a few scenes where Zuko and Aro are living as beggars and Zuko beats up a guy. <laughs> but yeah, this this episode, despite its the depiction of swamp people, did have a bunch of interesting revelations. So you had some thoughts on this, Sarah? Yeah, this is. I feel like this episode is one of the more like trippier episodes where it and they showed us this a couple of times where it really plays into people's like subconscious or the the character's subconscious and extracts from that right and puts that into. Uh, the space of is it real is it not even if it's like not real right it does say something about the characters or it does reveal something deeper about the characters i guess it, it was a lot of like sensory information i was taking in because one the characters don't really know why they're there two they're separated from each other for a large part of the episode and they're like seeing their vulnerabilities manifest before their eyes at the same time like just imagining being in a space where you don't know left from right up and down like the direction is just like completely disorientating to you they were literally lost and like how they got unlost is the journey right mm-hmm. <laughs> like as they established the direction the, like the goal of the party uh in the first episode of this season uh, by the third episode, that goal is gone. They can't just go to Omashu and have Aang learn earthbending. So what do we do? And then they go get lost in the swamp. And then Aang gets a little bit of a hint about what he's supposed to do next. And of course, mm-hmm. everybody else is also getting a little bit of extra information. I'm not entirely sure what Sokka seeing UA is supposed to mean. Other than the fact <laughs> that he's just hung up on the moon. Uh, so I, I, this was a cool enough thing that I had to write it down. Uh, at some point, Sokka is getting, like, sucked into the vine creature. And so Katara helps him by freezing that section of the vines that he's trapped in and then pushing mm-hmm. herself through the creature using water. And it's just this really <laughs> cool bit of choreography where Katara is clearly an expert at using water bending at this point. I guess she's really just showing off her ability. <laughs> but speaking of expert water bending, it's also shown that the vine creature is just a person who was a waterbender who was controlling the vines by bending the water within the vines, which mm-hmm. is just really getting like literally into the weeds here about how yeah. you, you how you can use these oh, bending techniques. And the, uh... The implications of that is kind of uh, messed up if you think about that. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's lots of things that are largely composed of water. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. also this, This uh, also to mention the, the Zuko and Iroh thing, I really loved this, that little section where they are, uh, so Zuko and Iroh are sitting in the street and just begging, and then this man comes by and forces mm-hmm. Iroh to sing and dance. Like, he's, he's just, like, using his swords to kind of force Iroh to get up and sing and dance. 
and yeah, then much the, the samurai version of like pulling out your revolver yeah in a saloon dance <laughs> yeah so iroh dances and then afterwards the guy gives the money that he promised and iroh's like such a kind man <laughs> like it's such yeah. a good character moment <laughs> yeah because yeah, i mean they were like humiliated right mm-hmm. and yeah. but iroh's just kind of like he can't touch me you know i know yeah. what's out <laughs> well, I, i'm thinking like like he could have done he could have made iroh do the dance and then gave less money or gave no money and just have really humiliated him but uh-huh. iroh like he, he said he was going to give them a gold piece and that's what that's exactly what he gave them and it's like wow he, <laughs> he gave me money like exactly wow that's a lot more than i've been getting what a good guy like completely ignoring the bad person yeah (laughs) all right so let's see next we got episode five avatar day which is where uh the the gang gets into this town and they're celebrating or they seem to be celebrating the avatar including like they have these big statues of ang and uh, roku and Mm -hmm. kiyoshi and then it turns out that it's actually this this town hates the avatar they burn down the statues and mm-hmm. and gets himself arrested in order to try to clear the name of the avatar. Yeah, there's just it's this whole trial episode <laughs> <laughs> where they uh yeah, they have to solve the mystery of what happened hundreds of years ago and we get to learn a little bit more about Kyoshi. We did get to talk about her just coming out here and just admitting to the crime like yeah, I murdered that guy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's lo- lots of cool little moments. <laughs> mhm. And to go back to the idea of this, this, this show has a lot of like setups and payoffs and some of them happen really fast. Like at the very beginning of this episode, they, they pay, the, the party pays for some, some supplies using water tribe money. And it's like, do you accept this? And the guy's like, oh yeah, no problem. The money's money, right? And then later on, Aang gets arrested and there's, there's a bail and it's like, okay, well, can we, can we pay this? Like, no, we don't accept trotter, water tribe money. <laughs> so Aang has to stay in jail, even though he could have easily mm. escaped at any time, as he shows. Yeah, I love the prisoners that that Aang meets. Where it's one of those tropes that I just really enjoy of having a bunch of big, scary guys with tattoos, and then you know Aang just starts talking to them about his relationships, and they're they're, they're just like yeah. very responsive, start giving him good advice and all that stuff. Yeah, they're good role models. Uh, there's this cool moment where. In the the uh, flashback showing what Kyoshi did, uh, she seems to have bent lava at some point, mm-hmm. which is really cool. And uh, let's see here, uh, we get to see frothing mouth guy again. That was always fun. Who's the frothing mouth guy? Whenever they first go to Kyoshi Island, there's this guy who's like, "Oh my god, it's the Avatar!" And just falls over. And this, yeah, and then he comes back in this episode, but it turns out that the Avatar's not there. This time he just assumed, so he frothed and then gets up and he foams. Yeah, he goes away embarrassed. Lots, lots of callbacks, which is why it's also uh, uh, there's this 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 good moment where after having lost his boomerang uh, earlier in the episode, Sokka retrieves his, like gets his boomerang back. And gosh, I, I don't even really remember the setup. I just remember the the line "boomerang, you do always come back" being very very good. Yeah, I don't exactly remember the setup either, but yeah, I remember that being a pretty solid, a good one liner. Uh, let's see here. We have uh, episode six, the blind bandit. This is an important one. Aang's trying to find a teacher for uh, for earthbending, and he's just ha- not having much luck. 
Uh, but then we get to go see this pro wrestling style earth bending competition. The pebble. <laughs> yeah, the it pebble. Which I gotta wonder, which came first, the Monster Factory episode with the pebble or this? Uh, almost Probably definitely this. this, yes, because this was like 2006. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> uh, we get the Fire Nation man, that cla- the classic heel, even though he's obviously an earthbender. He's just, I'm Fire Nation man, and everybody hate me. But then we get the the re- the reveal of Toph. <laughs> it's going to be very important moving forward. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was... I was wondering when she was going to get introduced because I sometimes would like see her on the Netflix app as like the promotional material, like as a thumbnail. Mm-hmm. It was just like a, you know, some scene, some screenshot of her. It's like, who is this person? Like, why are they so important that they're like this thumbnail here? Glad I finally got to meet them. It's just, it's like this late addition to the party where of course going forward in the next few episodes, like she's going to have trouble, like really finding her place within the party dynamic. And that's just going to be a nice little source of, uh, of of conflict there. But yeah, very clearly a, a fun addition to the party. Oh yeah, does not feel tacked on at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and and fun little fact about that episode: the Boulder, one of the 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 earthbending wrestle guys, he was in fact voiced by uh, Mick Foley, also known as Mankind. So they they got a, a, a real live wrestler to voice this guy, which was a very nice touch. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh wait, was that his name? Is he the boulder? Yes. Oh, so the pebble wasn't in the show. Okay. No, 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 no. They did call, I think Toph called him oh. the pebble as an insult. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I remember there being something in there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Toph was so powerful that she erased his actual name from your memory and replaced yeah. it with the one that she made up for him. Uh, very good yeah that that very important episode is followed by another very important episode which is zuko alone oh yeah zuko's fever dream is what i like to call it yeah it's it's (laughs) such a it's it's a very strong episode because it's i'm pretty sure like ang and the, the the ang gang aren't even a thing in this episode whatsoever i think it's just all him all the time Which he was missing from some episodes, so yeah, yeah. that was needed. He's separated from Iroh at this point, too. So yeah. it's like he is in his own thoughts, for sure. And it's just this really cool sort of Western-inspired episode where he just kind of, he's just this lone guy comes into this dusty town and there's clearly some conflict that he's just kind of walking into, doesn't really want to be involved with, but... Uh, because he is, uh, because he does have a heart, he does take pity on some people who are getting, uh, who are getting attacked, and he uh, he defends them and ends up getting embroiled in this conflict. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it's kind of going through his, uh, you know, you get to see a lot more of his past, like his uh, his history with his mom, who we've never seen really seen before. Mm-hmm. We get to see young Azula with young May and Ty Lee. Mm-hmm. We get to see that, I don't think it was established before, that Iroh was actually supposed to be the next Fire Lord, and that Zuko's dad basically took that away from him. Yeah, I think that's the first I learned of that. Mm-hmm. Not really sure how yet. You know? It brings yeah. Iroh's relationship with Zuko into a completely different light, specifically how... See, Zuko... Iroh always defers to Zuko when offering it. Like, he offers his advice, but whatever Zuko wants to do, he lets him do. Mm-hmm. Which... Shows that he's not just there to... 
he had he could theoretically have the authority to like really force Zuko to go along with him, but he doesn't. He's grooming Zuko to be the next head of the Fire Nation because mm-hmm. and Iroh knows how to do this because he was himself once set to inherit the title. So he lets Zuko lead and make mistakes and learn from them while also learning to heed the advice of others and become uh, comfortable making his own decisions. It's extremely good. It's a really cool way to learn how to become a leader, I think. It's very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think, I guess through the guidance of which type of elder you're working with, right? Because like mm-hmm. with Zuko's like, biological father, it is set up to this is how you will win my validation. This is how I have predetermined your value, right? And predetermined your destiny. While as Iroh, I, I definitely see him as, you know, he's the elder uh, kind of tacked on with Zuko on this adventure, but never once has he challenged Zuko or like, as like, as an adult, he's never really put Zuko in a situation to gain validation in some ways. Mm-hmm. Interesting father figure type yeah aside from just grooming or like a good way to sort of create a, a good leader i think that's just good parenting in general yeah really of just um knowing that you know respecting someone respecting your your child in the sense of knowing that they're their own person and having to you know respect what they want to do but also you know being able to guide them let them fall make mistakes but still being there for them like the whole way even if they don't know you're there just Mm-hmm. supporting from the shadows if you have to. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Iroh's so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we also get to see how Iroh loses his son, uh, which causes him to lose the will to lead. We In the flashbacks, Azula is, is apparently so clearly psychopathic that even her mother wonders aloud what's wrong with her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not great, but... <laughs> yeah. I guess it's just, it is ringing the sentiments of everyone watching, though. So there's the the mantra "Azula always lies," which is very important. I would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I just had a quick realization where in this episode you learned kind of the family uh, betrayals that are going on, right? Because I think Sozin he is the second in line, right? As is like uh, Azula, who is like second in line. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's just interesting that you see family history kind of like be learned throughout the generation. Uh, I think you meant uh, Ozai and not Sozin. Sozin was oh. was uh, was much much earlier. I almost think it's like this is the moment where you see that Zuko is actually not completely alienated from his family. He's actually got people on his side besides just like Iroh in his like immediate family. He's got his mother now, right? And we don't really know what what she did that made her leave. Or did I always? I assumed it was something that she was worried was mm. going to happen. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's some one of those. I think it's one of those moments where it seems like an abandonment, like a character is doing something protecting their own interests. Like maybe she left because she was afraid for herself, and she, you know, couldn't bring Zuko with her, so she just protected herself over her kids. I'm banking. I'm hoping that there's like a secret motive that we just don't see yet. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of that. So we gotta rush through these a little bit more now because uh, I want to especially get to the the last episode. Uh, I do want to mention how cool mm-hmm. it is though that that Zuko goes. He knows how to hide him, himself being a firebender. It's not until he has to fight that that earthbender that he uh, eventually pulls out his firebending as a last resort. Uh, but mo- for the most part, he's just a capable sword fighter all on that on his own. So that makes him very uh, very interesting. Uh, and he, of course, it does the same thing while he's mm-hmm. the blue spirit. 
Um, let's see. Uh, episode 8, The Chase, where the Aang gang is getting just chased into exhaustion because Azula is on their tail and is not letting them rest. And so they're just tired and getting angry with each other. And mm-hmm. the dynamic between Toph and Katara is, is uh, set up a little bit, showing that not all girls necessarily have much in common. Sokka is continuing to be his Sokka-ly self, where he can't even be, he can't even bear to be seen as anything less than manly, because he calls his ponytail a manly warrior's wolf tail. Uh-huh. So we we see we see Azula, who's just as tenacious as Zuko, tracking uh, tracking the Avatar, and then behind her is Zuko, who is tracking the tank. Uh, and then behind uh-huh. behind him is Iroh, who's tracking Zuko. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's this the the cool uh, encounter between Toph and and Iroh, where they have oh, a, yeah. the very important and meaningful conversation, where they're just talking about completely different things, but both help to get each other into a good a good headspace. And then of course mm-hmm. uh, Azula, you know, eventually tracks down Aang and corners him. Uh, she tanks on Aang uh, and Zuko two on one, and then nearly wins. And then she takes on Aang, Katara, and Sokka, and still has the upper hand. And then she's cornered by Aang, uh, Katara, Sokka, Toph, Zuko, and Iroh, and then escapes. Like <laughs> she can't be defeated. Apparently, of course, mm-hmm. by that point, like most of the characters are pretty exhausted. They're not really used to working with each other, at least between Zuko and and Aang. So it's. It's just very impressive on Azula's part. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of things from earlier in the season really came to a head in that one. Yeah, I mean, it was like everyone's um, interest or like everyone's um, colliding. It was like into mm-hmm. one space. So that that was interesting because... Um, the first time a lot of people uh, in the Aang gang saw like uh, saw the uncle. Oh, uh, not, not really, because he, he had already appeared to them, uh, at least in the finale of the season one, whenever he helped to, to he tried to help defend the uh, the fish. Mm, okay. Yeah, I feel like he and them haven't really crossed a whole lot of paths yet. It's you true, yeah. They that. haven't really had a conversation, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, we gotta, we gotta rush through a little bit more. There's episode nine, Bitter Work, where Aang needs to learn how to earthbend. While Zuko needs to learn better firebending techniques, so there's the uh, that uh, that combination where they both have trouble with uh, with mental blocks. Aang has trouble with earthbending because it goes against his nature. He's driven by avoidance, uh, and the earth demands to be faced head on if you're to move it. While Zuko has trouble with lightning bending because it requires one to be free of emotion, and Zuko has been driven by anger up to this point. Mm-hmm. And instead, uh, Zuko ends up having to learn how to just redirect lightning which comes back after uh, Iroh showed it in the, that first episode. And, yeah, eventually they just kind of get get to a good point. I, uh, there's this really good quote that I want to share from, from Iroh, where he says, Pride is not the opposite of shame, but its source. Uh, and then it ends with yeah. Zuko yelling at clouds, <laughs> which in our first episode, I should note that, Jack, you, uh, you did say that it feels kind of like the world is out to get Zuko, and here we see that Zuko feels very much the same way. Oh. <laughs> yeah yeah no that, i thought that was a pretty that was a really good scene and also if like the world is resisting against you maybe you should take into account why that is too <laughs> <laughs> to some degree yeah and this kind of reminded me of uh the fortune teller episode where she she tells Sokka that your, your life will be filled with pain or whatever and most of it is going to be All self-inflicted <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then we end this uh, this half with the library where the group 
decides to, I guess, mostly they're just taking little vacations, and then Sokka's like, oh, they, well, they hear about this library, and, and Sokka's like, oh, that sounds really cool. I want to use my vacation on that. Maybe we can find some good information. Mm-hmm. And so they, they find this this big library in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. So they leave Toph and Appa outside because it is underground, and Toph likes being outside better, and uh, and Appa, of course, definitely doesn't want to go back underground after uh, after that. Uh, that cave that he was in before. Mm-hmm. And so here we meet Wan Chi Tong. And as usual, encounters with spirits are some of the coolest encounters. Yeah. Like, I understand that like they can only happen every once in a while because if you have them around too much, they do cease to be as mysterious. But because they're used so sparingly, whenever we do get to see them, it's some of the coolest things. We do get to see that Zhao continues to, to antagonize the party because uh, even after his apparent death, because he did come to this library before, uh, caused a lot of trouble for uh, for Wan Chi Tong, and therefore Wan Chi Tong does not like people being in his library anymore. <laughs> it seems like knowledge to the means of like protection is also like knowledge to the means of like still. Uh, I don't know. It's like protection is not mutually exclusive to harm. So that's kind of what I've understood because, like, you know, the, the Wan Shi Tang was very protective of the knowledge in that he didn't want it to be used to harm, right? But here we learn that, like, you know, harming people is kind of inevitable. Yeah, I think what was the line was, like, you think you're the first people who think your war is justified or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, just really driving home the whole thing about there is no good or evil in this show perspective on things. So uh, so we are pretty much out of time, unfortunately. Uh, I feel like there. I, I really want to explore this episode some more. Maybe we can start the next episode talking a little bit more about this library episode because there's there's a lot to impact there. And maybe we can touch mm-hmm. upon a few of the, the things that happened earlier in the uh in the earlier episodes, we did spend about half this episode talking about uh, just just talking about some some characters and their growth and stuff, uh, which I thought was very mm-hmm. valuable. Uh, so we have a little bit of wiggle room as far as continuing to talk about this season. But unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have to call it a call it closed right now because I do have only a few minutes to go pick up my child from daycare. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks you folks for uh, for coming and talking about this first half of Avatar Book Two Earth. We'll be moving on to the second half of Book Two Earth next week. So, listeners, if you have thoughts about Avatar you'd like to share, if you've got thoughts about one of our other up- upcoming episode topics, please email them to your friends at fangamer.com. You can also send us voicemails, either by using the Anchor app on your phone or by emailing us your audio file. As I said, next week we will be continuing our EXP share of Avatar The Last Airbender, and then the week after that we'll be talking about video game music, bringing up some of our favorite soundtracks. Uh, you're more than welcome to share your own favorites, as well as sending us recommendations. We'll probably be listening to a bit of them uh, over the course of the episode. Uh, you're also welcome to send us questions about pretty much anything. At this point, I usually talk about things I'm an expert at, but I am out of time, so I, I'm not clearly I'm not an expert at uh, uh, time management. So that pretty much does it for us this week. Uh, again, I would usually ask for final thoughts, but I, I think it'd be safe to save our final thoughts for the end of the season anyway. 
So, uh, thank you very much, Jack and Sarah, for joining me this week. Listeners, if you would like to support this podcast, please consider buying something from the Fangamer store. Alternately, just share us with your friends, tweet about us, or even tweet at us. Thank you, Super Soul Brothers, for the music on this episode, and thank you, listener, for listening. We're your friends at Fangamer. Try to make someone smile today, and let's plan on hanging out again next week. All three of us. Bye. Maybe plus one. (laughs) Bye-bye.